you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn Look alive, deadbeats! Gabby Dunn here, back in your headphones with a brand new season of the podcast that really annoys your privileged friends. Bad with money is back, baby! So, as you may have noticed, season two of this show did not successfully dismantle the socioeconomic patriarchy. I'm sorry. But guys, I'm just one person, okay? I'm one lady with a mic. And if I learned anything from last season, it's that we should probably use this season to try even harder to dismantle the socioeconomic patriarchy. But don't worry, this podcast isn't going to just devolve into 45 minutes a week of me reading you chapters from Karl Marx. I mean, probably no guarantees. I could do it like on a separate YouTube channel, ASMR style, if you guys would be into that. Nobody would be into that. As you all know by now, this isn't just a simple, practical financial advice show. Those shows exist, and they're fine if they're for you, but we're not here to treat money as just a practical issue. We look at it as an emotional and cultural struggle. While previous seasons have focused on the ways that we confront these questions as individuals, this season we're going to broaden the scope and talk about the particular way that America has built its financial identity. Because I don't know if you guys have noticed from everything around us and also the first two seasons of this show, but we're in the middle of a financial identity crisis. If you're hearing that and you're thinking, no, I love hearing people's personal financial stories on Bad With Money and that's also your voice, look, I get it. And what I want to ask you to do with me this season is to think about the kinds of personal narratives you've heard on the show and then the ways those stories hopefully connected with your own journey through the perils of personal finance. Let's consider the idea that part of the reason those stories resonated with you is because the guilt and the shame and the fear about money that you felt over the course of your life isn't actually an individual story. And don't worry, you'll still hear personal stories from me and my guests. I love to talk about myself. I can't help it. But for this season, we'll be working hard to contextualize those stories more, you know, so that they feel sadder, more pathetic, more devastating. I'm just kidding. I mean, I'm not. You guys have heard this show before. A lot of you tell me it causes anxiety. I'm sorry, but it also relieves anxiety, right? I don't know about you, but my relationship to money is part of a larger system of relationships. A giant, creaky, kind of rusty financial machine that, the closer you look, isn't always built to serve the people that rely on it. This season, we're going to try to zoom in on some critical gears in the machine that are in dire need of repair. And as much as possible, we're going to propose those repairs. In some cases, just to extend this metaphor further, we'll even suggest who to call for parts and service. You're going to meet some academics, presidential candidates, Oh yeah, you heard that right. Journalists, activists, and lots of other people who have real actual solutions to the financial system that's given us all so many headaches. So join me, fellow deadbeats, for another season of Audio Advil. And to start this season, I wanted to go back to something I've been thinking about since the very first episode of Bad With Money. Back when I started this show, I was in a bad place when it comes to money. Hence the name of the show. I felt like my parents had set me up for a pretty bad relationship with my finances, and I was personally really struggling. But even on my worst days, the fact is, I had it a lot better than a lot of people. And I think a big contributing factor to that is, I'm a white lady. That's not to say that white people don't get screwed by the system too, 
But for this episode, we're going to look at all the ways that structural racism has been built into the system and how it's stacked against black and brown people in America. Because the fact is, white people don't stop to think about this enough. I'm guessing a lot of black listeners on the show are going to roll their eyes a few times during this episode and go, welcome to the party, Gabby. But I hope you guys will bear with me. I like to think of myself as knowledgeable, but a lot of the stuff in this episode totally bowled me over. And I'm not ashamed to admit that I still have a lot to learn about the structural advantages I've enjoyed, simply because I'm a white lady. So folks, get ready to meet the first of our nonstop parade of brilliant badasses. Sandy Darity is a professor of public policy, African and African-American studies, and economics at Duke University. And he really put this into perspective for me. He did a study of wealth in Boston households in 2014, and the results were really stark. The median wealth for, for all white households, taken whether they're low income, high income, or middle income, the median wealth level in, in Boston that we estimated when we did this study circa 2014 was about $220,000. But the median wealth position for black households in Boston was only $8. Jesus. So close to zero. Oh, my God. Well, what what accounts for that? Like, how can you ever make up that kind of ground? I don't think you can make up that kind of ground through your own personal actions or individual behavioral changes. That's the whole point of this podcast at this point. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, if we were to take the average black household in the United States and compare their wealth position with the average white household and ask the average black household to engage in sufficient savings to close the gap, they would have to save about 100% of their annual income for three consecutive years to close the gap. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's an impossibility. We actually don't have any evidence that blacks and whites save in different ways or at different rates. Once you take into account household income, the black and white savings rates are largely indistinguishable. And in some income categories, the black savings rate is slightly higher. So the real issue is what is the endowment that individuals start their adult lives with? What is it that they've received in a cumulative way from family, from relatives, from friends in the way of gifts or inheritances that set them up in a different economic situation from others who have received much less? And, and I think the only way we, we address those kinds of distributional inequalities is by having some mechanism to redistribute wealth. Don't worry, we'll hear more from Sandy later. But can we just draw a line under what he said for a second? There's literally nothing black people can do to make up for the ground between themselves and whites in terms of wealth inequality. And it's not their fault for not saving. It's almost like, I don't know, there's something else going on. So how the fuck did we get here? We'll be back with some answers after the break. We're back. Let's dive right in. The last 40 or 50 years has been both this amazing transformation in our society in many ways, more integration, more opportunity for African-Americans and other people of color and women and queer people, etc. This is Trisha Rose, the director of the Center for Race and Ethnicity in America at Brown University. But at the same time, we've established an entrenched 
racial logic about how to see or not see color, often called color blindness, as a way to achieve more racial equality. And it's been very destructive because it's it's actually made it more difficult to see and respond to existing racial discrimination. A couple years ago, Trisha curated a lecture series called How Structural Racism Works. She thinks if we actually want to address our country's racial and economic inequalities, first we have to admit that inequality exists. Colorblindness is a multifaceted idea that has what we'd call maybe, say, liberal and more reactionary or more conservative trajectories about them. But they both rely on the fundamental idea that it's better to not see or use color as a category of recognition or analysis because to do so is to be racist or to uh, basically encourage racial hierarchy. But of course, over the past 50 years, what we've seen is that whether you claim to see color or not, society is continuing to not only reward based on race, but whether it's explicitly said or not, actually retain color hierarchies with even colorblind policies. So what's instead happened is that people are more anxious about talking about race and coming up with racial, racially just ways of understanding how American history has operated because they've lost any facility with the language of a category that's incredibly significant. So colorblindness has actually impeded our ability to really achieve what the goal might be, which would be a a colorblind or a society that doesn't judge people based on the color of their skin. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to fix and pinpoint problems, like specific to a group, if you claim you don't see that group. It's sort of like, I, I am a queer person, and it's sort of like, well, you guys just want what straight people want. You want to get married. And it's like, sure, yeah, that's part of it. But there's like other stuff, you know, this whole thing of like, you just want to be like us ends up kind of meshing into white and straight rather than like sp- the specific problems of each group. Exactly. But it also, it, it it not only establishes an invisible white norm, colorblindness, but it also renders whites unable to examine their own racial category because you know, what you normally get is colorblindness means we don't see non-white people who we used to see very explicitly and control, right? Colored water fountains, white water fountains. So liberals were very quick to say, well, maybe we should just get rid of all of this color coding system and drop it. Now, that would be fine if we, had, if we could just completely transform our psyches and every institution in society from the ground up. But since there's a massive legacy of, of racial advantages attached to whiteness, not seeing color works to support the status quo. So it doesn't actually neutralize our, our way of relating racially. It just means that it mostly makes uh, whites uncomfortable talking about white privilege and also talking about other ideas related to, to color in the first place. And, and more than color, it's institutional and systemic Uh, forms of discrimination that are so powerful. Because the other thing, Gabby, that's really remarkable is that over the past 30 or 40 years, you have much more self-understanding among Americans that they are racially integrated or that they consume black culture and that they know hip-hop and they like Shaquille O'Neal and we have movies now, we have black superheroes and we had a black president. And, you know, so you have this kind of cultural sense that there's been all of this change because there's a lot of what we call kind of celebrity and big picture media imagery change at the level of 
celebrity, not at the level of everyday people in the media. Right. Yeah. And, but what you you know what I mean? But what you have on the ground is extreme structural, not only segregation, but significant institutional discrimination. So it's it's a conundrum. People simply can't believe it. They're like, I'm not racist. I don't see color. How could it be that there's so much housing discrimination, so much criminal justice discrimination and so on? So similar to what, you know, the whole thing that we talk about on this show about problems in the economic system where we say, well, you're responsible for yourself and you just have to keep your own house in order and your own finances in order and you're going to be fine. And if you can't do that, then you're the problem. And so I think that's kind of similar to this idea of like, well, I'm not racist, so nobody's racist. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It is similar. And I think that this triumph of individualism has been another part of our problem. It, it's it's not that our own behavior doesn't matter. It's not that we don't have some individual will, which we mm. do, but our individual will is deeply ensconced in social context. Right. And that social context is present, past, and future, right? It's they're, they're related across time. So there's no possible way that we can be perfectly solely responsible for everything that happens in our lives because so much of what's in front of us, so much of what is available to us, so much of how people respond to us or how institutions respond, uh, shape what our options are and what we begin to perceive as our capacity and role. So we're both individuals, right, who have some significant and important will and determination, but we're also members of groups constructed by society in very significant ways. And the more we deny that, the more we're unable to see how important it is, particularly for fragile communities, to be able to be socially protected, as it were, right, to be given opportunities to live up to their full potential rather than being in situations in which they're consistently being evacuated of energy resources and opportunities and then being expected to have all of this free will to fight harder and use all their gumption to succeed, you know, which is basically saying, you know, we've disadvantaged you, we've, you know, cut off one leg or we've put two arms behind the back and we're expecting you to run the marathon at the same level and we're not even going to talk about it. Right. Yeah. Because first of all, we don't see color. Right. And we don't notice that we've created discrimination to impede your ability. So now that she's explained the framework of colorblindness, I asked Trisha for an example of how racism encoded into various forms of policy has a compounding effect. The combination of housing segregation and housing discrimination, which produces dramatic wealth gaps, it also undercapitalizes and suppresses the value in investing in black neighborhoods. But it's also the linchpin for a deep educational disparity at the level of resource allocation. Because although we know we have this history of substantial economic discrimination through housing and lending, we still fund most of our public educational budgets through property taxes. And by funding public education, which is supposed to be the great equalizer for an egalitarian democracy, by funding it through property taxes, we've systematically engineered an asset like education and the budgets for it to be tethered to a systemically racist system of housing value determination. So you basically take the poorest neighborhoods and then also the neighborhoods that might have the least economic value inside of their own inside of being poor, right, which are black and brown communities. And then you give them edu fewer educational resources to work with, which creates overcrowding, which creates greater uh, uh, pressures on those schools. 
but you've also created, you know, unstable neighborhoods through the lack of resources um, and uh, any number of other problems that are associated with chronic discrimination and, and poverty. And then you, you hamstring the schools, right? And then, you know, as, as the mass incarceration system is built, you create a school-to-prison pipeline. That is to say that you punish, everything becomes a punishment model, um, that, that by using behavior again as the linchpin for thinking about why kids might be acting out or why they might be upset, uh, you interpret them as being sort of on their way to being criminals as opposed to a kid who needs some additional hug, help, support, spiritual guidance, you know, better adult listening to their problems and conditions. Listen, guys, I'll admit I've been guilty of colorblind thinking. It's deceptively easy for white people to think we're helping by pretending not to see race. But what Trisha's telling us is that that actually makes things worse. I know. I know. It seems really obvious. It is really obvious. You know, when you have a blind spot when you're driving, you know, you're, you're really happy when someone points it out to you because you don't want to, like, turn, switch lanes and end up running into another car. But this is a blind spot nobody wants to know about. You tell them about it and they're like, no, 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 it's okay. <laughs> or, oh, my God, that's so terrible. You know, what's the weather today? You know, it's just sort of a blind spot that never gets undone. So Trisha wants us to stop pretending we live in a society and an economy that isn't fundamentally defined by race. And that's obviously more of a pressing responsibility for those of us who are white. And hey, that's me. I'm white. And I've benefited from this whiteness in ways I can't even know. My next guest is Prudence Carter, who gave one of the lectures in the series Trisha curated at Brown. Prudence is the dean of the Graduate School of Education at Berkeley, and she sees two key areas where history has created significant barriers to the advancement of black people, the education system and cultural representation. And when it comes to breaking those barriers, equality isn't enough. Instead, we should focus more on equity. I believe that the only way to solve the problems of inequality is to think about this as an interdisciplinary problem. You've got to go back in history about how we built this country, how we built the capital of this country, how we built the middle class of this country, how housing and suburbs were, were created, how that's linked to the tax base that uh, leads to the capital and the revenue that funds schools. And then you have to think about the fact that there's a vast amount of difference that's all historically accumulated. The question of equity comes in, and the, the notion of equity is that in order for different groups who've been historically disadvantaged in this country by race and ethnicity, class status, to be able to compete effectively, you have to be able to compensate for the accumulated disadvantage that has been spread across generations. And that is getting at the process of equity, such that you don't necessarily allocate the same resources, that which is equality, to all groups, but you may have to allocate more resources to some groups of kids in order to compensate for the fact that there are huge wealth differentials in their communities. That's been actually some of it sanctioned by the state historically. In order to get equity, you'd have to basically address the historical accumulation of disadvantage. And that is not something that this country has done yet. So, you know, when we think about, for example, housing, which is a fascinating issue to me, the distribution of land, all of this historically, which is a fascinating issue to me, about how that built the middle class 
and how the United States, because of the racism, institutionalized racism built into the system until we got the Fair Housing Act of 1968, and how that led to wealth generation that, that has been passed down through families. And all of that is like historical fact. That's historical fact. You can build the case. So many people have written about this, right? So, right. And I could name a slew of scholars from historians to economists who've been able to document that. But because that that disadvantage was set up historically, what what the expectation is today for us in the United States, and, you know, it's been post-1960s. Okay, we got the Civil Rights Act. Okay, the United States government doesn't sanction racism anymore. But the reality is, we never dealt with all of the accumulation of disadvantage that came prior in the intergenerational transmission of capital and wealth. And so now so the, the metaphor I write about all the time is essentially we have three groups of kids. We have some, some groups of kids who, come, who are on an elevator that's going at the rate of a bullet speed train, some on an escalator that's going up and up, and it's all its cogs and wheels and, you know, mechanisms are nicely oiled. And we have some kids on stairwells where they're missing handrails and they're missing steps and broken pieces and floorboards, and we're telling them all to get to floor 16 at the same time, on average, at the same time. Now, they got three fundamentally different modes of transportation. And if they, the average at which they get to floor 16, the differences across that is called the achievement gap. We'll never get rid of the fact that we'll have a class stratified society. I won't say never, maybe after I'm gone. But, and so in a country that's where it has a capitalist economy, free market economy, you're going to have the class. The reality is, though, how do you minimize the barriers? so that you can give all kids, where it's not patterned by your social identity, the equal opportunity, and you have to address the fact that equal opportunity doesn't mean starting the day paying the same thing or allocating the same dollars because we never address the accumulated disadvantaged in this country. Can we talk about the distinction between diversity and integration? Yeah, so diversity is about demographics. It's about social composition. It's about who's in the room, who's in the classroom, who's in the school, who's in the community. But diversity doesn't necessarily lend itself naturally to the sharing of resources or power or the or deepening the connections or ties among different groups of people, people who are different. Integration is more about deep organizational or residential change so that people's lives are braided or more interwoven, so that there's a sharing of resources, so that there's, there's more representation across the various spheres. It doesn't mean that you don't have your own space to celebrate your cultural difference. You can still do that. But there's more merging and blending and kind of diminishing of boundaries with integration, ideally, in principle and value. Diversity is just having people in the room. And honestly, you can have a diverse place and it can be just as disempowering. You've referred to, to sociocultural flexibility. Can you explain that or like what, you know, if in relation to like concrete steps that we could take? In order to reduce the problem of inequality, we're going to have to become more socially and culturally flexible and figure out how to do the project of integration better. That's in our lives, in our everyday lives, from school to home to friendships to relationships to the workplace. I was told once 
by a highly esteemed colleague that nobody cares about integration anymore, Gabby. Why? And it, perhaps in American society we missed the moment. I don't, I'd like to be hopeful and think we didn't. But because we're so much more class stratified, it's so expensive to live in a lot of our communities today, it's, it's a challenging moment. But I, I actually fundamentally believe it's going to be difficult for us to truly achieve equity in American society if we don't integrate our lives better. As usual on this show, there's no sense denying how grim the forecast is. As Prudence so diplomatically put it, it's a challenging moment. In fact, she says that by some estimates, it will take black people in America about 100 years to close the economic gap between them and white people. So we asked Prudence to do a little thought experiment. Let's say she was a member of the next president's cabinet, and she had the chance to push for one big ambitious policy that might make a meaningful difference. What would that one thing be? I wish you would give me two. So we gave her two. We're not monsters. And they're both really powerful ideas. I'll tell you all about them after the break. Welcome back to the show. Let's get back to that thought experiment we conducted with Prudence Carter, the one where we asked her to recommend some policy changes to counteract the effects of structural racism. You know, little softball questions. If you had to ask me about what I would want to do at a housing level that would affect the school level, I would work in more targeted programs in cities. I would even incentivize cities to think about blended economic communities, the mixture of housing that would bring middle, upper middle class and working class and poor people together. That is probably too idealistic because the way we're socialized now is too many of those of us with means look down on those who don't and we feel like they're dangerous. So they'd have to be more social and cultural work to get that project going. Um, but you would have a project of economic integration. It was devastating to keep hearing in these interviews about how public schools are largely funded by property taxes meaning poor communities end up saddled with a disproportionate lack of educational resources. So we found Prudence's recommendation really intriguing and wondered if it really was too idealistic to work. Like everything else on this show. Okay, but guys, good news. There actually is a program like the one Prudence is describing that's being utilized in a few cities around the country. It's called Inclusionary Zoning. And quick side note, isn't it weird that we have to specifically identify this kind of zoning as inclusionary? It's almost like our housing laws are predicated on excluding certain people from neighborhoods. Weird, right? Anyway, inclusionary zoning. So the idea of an inclusionary zoning policy takes advantage of the development of market rate housing to either incentivize or require the development of housing that's um, made available at below market rents or prices. Lisa Sturdivant is a housing policy researcher in Virginia, and she works with communities to plan effective development strategies. She says that inclusionary zoning can be a really effective tool to build mixed-income communities. The idea is in a community where rents and home prices are growing really fast and development's really strong, an inclusionary zoning policy, the sort of philosophy is that, that taking advantage of those trends and making sure that everybody benefits or that there's opportunities for people at all incomes to benefit from the new development by, you know, by making this requirement, that the market wouldn't, you know, Here's how inclusionary zoning works. Let's say you live in Awesome City, USA. Everyone wants to live there because there are so many neighborhoods with beautiful houses, parks, great museums, a main street with adorable shops and restaurants. 
that probably means it's pretty expensive to live in Awesome City. Which is good news if you're rich and your kids go to public school because all the rich taxpayers in your neighborhood are contributing lots of money to fund them. But it's bad news if you're poor or middle class because it means you probably can't live in the neighborhoods with the houses and the parks, even if you work in the restaurants and the shops. Now let's pretend Awesome City gets a new mayor. And this mayor wants the city to be awesome for more of its residents, not just the ones who can afford to live in the fancy parts. So the mayor implements inclusionary zoning. All of a sudden, any real estate developer who wants to build swanky new places to live in this city has to offer a percentage of its units, say like 10%, at below market rate. So now in theory, the best neighborhoods with their well-funded schools and pretty roads have a mix of people from different social classes living in them lawyers and construction workers and bank tellers and professors, and they live on the same street in the same houses and apartment buildings, and they send their kids to the same school. Best of all, because inclusionary zoning is now the law, it stays that way. As the city continues to grow and develop, the balance is preserved. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, WTF, why doesn't literally everywhere do this immediately? I'm so sorry for all the voices I've ascribed to you you people listening. Basically, we here at Bad With Money agree with you. But it turns out that real estate developers and landlords, you guessed it, they love money. So laws like this tend to make it hard to attract them, though some cities are trying with varying degrees of success. But there is one place where these policies have been on the books for a while, as in since 1974. And that place is Montgomery County, Maryland. Montgomery County, Maryland really is the the gold standard. Uh, There's been some research that has demonstrated that Children living in families that get access to these uh, units, these inclusionary housing units, do better in school uh, and have you know, better outcomes compared to children of similar economic backgrounds. It's true. People have studied it. Back in 2010, the Century Foundation looked at Montgomery County students' math scores over a seven-year period. Students who lived in the inclusionary zoning area and moved from high-poverty to low-poverty schools had math scores that improved by eight points. Now, look, we're not great at math here at Bad With Money, but eight points is a lot. That's a full letter grade. Every day I have nightmares about having to take math tests. I'm never going back to school. Stephanie Killian heads up Montgomery County's housing division. Among my many duties, I administer the Moderately Priced Dwelling Unit Program. She told me the sexily named Moderately Priced Dwelling Unit Program, or MPDU, makes Montgomery County feel less economically stratified than other places. I got to look at a PowerPoint presentation Stephanie recently put together, which had a fun slide called Can You Spot the Moderately Priced Dwelling Unit? Which it turns out is a super hard game. Affordable housing in Montgomery County doesn't have any of the bland, spartan qualities of public housing you see in other places. Stephanie says the program is carefully designed to help everyone feel like part of the same community. We have some areas with much, much higher incomes and much areas with lower incomes, but we don't have substantial pockets of poverty. We don't have neighborhoods in, in general where you can say that's where all the low-income housing is. Plus, because they've been doing this for so long, the real estate market has absorbed the cost of affordable housing. So the overall property values have stayed healthy. Stephanie's obviously a little biased, but when you look at these factors and consider the positive effect it seems to have on public education, she sees the MPDU program as an unqualified success and a great idea for other growing communities. It works economically, and it works socially, and it works from a public policy perspective. So guys, this is a big moment on Bad With Money. It's time for the first ever official Gabby Dunn policy recommendation. A drum roll, please. Maybe more places should try inclusionary zoning. It seems like it works. 
Okay, so remember how Prudence had two ideas? We'll get to the second one after the break. We're back. Here's Prudence's second idea for how to start a shift in our society's inequitable structure. It was the idea of baby bonds. Children are given a bond, every child born in this country, and it matures over the over their lifespan. And by the time they're 18, they already have something in the bank. It's kind of like a Social Security bond would be greater to either choose to go to college, choose to go into a trade, or open a business or what have you. But it creates some ample opportunity for those children who are already born into uh, poor circumstances. So here's where Sandy Darity comes back. He's one of the principal proponents of baby bonds as a way to even out the gap of wealth between white people and black people in America. Here's how it would work. Well, we'd have to agree upon some sort of algorithm where the particular wealth level of the child's family, perhaps it's the wealth level that's estimated over three to five years before the child is born, the wealth level of the child's family would dictate what the amount is of, that, that's put into the trust fund for that particular child. We, we, we sort of are thinking that there would be some sort of relationship where children who are born into families at the middle of the wealth distribution would probably get a trust fund of about $25,000, and then this would gradually increase as we went down the distribution towards those children who were born into the families that might actually have negative net worth. Right. We'd have to construct an algorithm that would be used for the purposes of making the assignment of the amounts correspond to the wealth position of the child's family. Ugh, I can just see certain wealthy people being such dicks about this and being like... <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like that girl who sued because of affirmative action, like assuming that she lost out on a spot at that school when it was like, what makes you think that that was your spot to begin with? I can just see a bunch of people being like, well, I'm missing $100. And it's like, uh, no, you're not because it wasn't yours. <laughs> like that kind of thing could. Uh, everyone's the worst. You know, my thinking is you might mitigate some of that by making it a universal program, even though it's not uniform. I think of this as a, as a redistributive mechanism that does not confiscate wealth from people who already have it. Right. You know, the, the confiscatory strategy is one that I don't reject at all. I mean, I, I do think we need mm -hmm. to have considerably higher estate taxes and the like. But we could execute the baby bonds type of strategy without really altering anything else we wouldn't mm. necessarily have to introduce any significant new taxes because the, on an annual basis, the program wouldn't be that large. I know everyone goes, oh, where will the money come from? And my response to that question, which I hate, is always like, we spend trillions on defense. Like, don't come at me with that. But right. you right. were saying that it would be very inexpensive. Yeah, so the annual bill, if we had, say, 4 million new infants born each year approximately, and if the mean amount of the trust fund was about $25,000, that would be about $100 billion annually, which is actually a very small share of the federal budget and is a tiny, tiny share of the wealth that's held by folks at the upper 1% of the wealth distribution. I think it's something like less than 0.1% or something like that. 
Well, because people are always like, these are, this isn't economically feasible for us to do, blah, blah, blah. But like, it, it completely is. Right, right. I mean, you know, I don't even have to go the route of making arguments about people's misunderstanding of the way in which federal finance operates. Mm. I simply can say in the context of a program of this scale that you just put it in place and you really can do it out of existing existing revenues. So what kind of traction have uh, you gotten on the baby bonds idea since you and Derek Hamilton have been researching it? There was an article that was, was run, I think it was this year, I think it was in January, by the Washington Post on the baby bonds idea. And there was a surge of interest in the idea at that moment, including a couple of congressional representatives who expressed an interest in the idea. A few years ago, the current senator from Maryland, Chris Van Hollen, while he was still a congressional representative, expressed an interest in this idea. So I I don't want to make the claim, I don't want to overstate where things are going. I don't want to make the claim that we're in the midst of a revolutionary momentum behind this idea. But it is gaining credibility and traction. Everybody moved to Montgomery County, Maryland. Just kidding, don't. We would probably ruin whatever utopia they're living in there. But chances are there are city council meetings in the place where you live. Is inclusionary zoning something that's being discussed there? Maybe it should be. Go find out. And if it isn't, propose it. You'll sound like one of those awesome, sexy housing policy nerds from TV. You guys know those. They come on right after firefighters having sex and police people who are good looking. My favorite shows. As for Sandy Darity's idea about baby bonds, I'm not holding my breath waiting for Congress to bring this idea up for debate. But guys, and we're going to be saying this a lot this season, it's an election year, and you're going to have a lot of people asking for your vote. If your mayor or your local congressperson is running for re-election, go to a town hall or call their office. Ask them what they think about ideas like this. Seriously, politicians love talking about their opinions. They'll be really happy you called. And it's one of those things that feels really scary to think about, but when you actually do it, you kind of can't believe how easy it is to get in touch with the people who represent you in government. And most of all, think about why we have problems like the ones my guests have been telling us about today. These are not problems caused by black people behaving irresponsibly. They're problems caused by government behaving despicably. These are systemic issues that have persisted for generations, which is why we need systemic solutions that will reshape future generations. If someone's asking for your vote and they don't have a good idea about how to make that kind of change, I'll bet there's someone else running who does. Maybe you've been listening to Bad With Money for a while and you've gotten better at saving and you have some extra cash to donate to that other person's campaign. Or buy one of Trisha Rose or Prudence Carter or Sandy Darity's books. If you're a teacher, add them to your curriculum. Or if you're a student, invite them to speak at your school. Their ideas aren't actually all that radical. There just aren't enough people paying attention to them. Not feeling inspired yet? I get it. Let me try one more thing. I want to go back to my interview with Trisha. Towards the end of our conversation, I was starting to feel, as I often do on this show, like all of these problems are too overwhelming to ever do anything about. Yeah, I know. I mean, but you know, in a funny way, Gabby, I'm I'm sort of a a weird person because I kind of feel like it's difficult to hear. And you can imagine this isn't the first time I've said it. So it's also difficult to say. But I, I really have this crazy belief, you know, that if we could just get 10% of people 
to be truly invested in seeking out, identifying, and, and working to undo these systemic impediments, that the world could really be a pretty different place pretty quickly. We don't really need 100%. We need the right 10%. Some of them need to be in certain positions of power or eventually be in those positions. But I actually think that's the, the switch we have to have, that it's not that hearing about it is where the problem is. It's the, the problem that it goes on so unmarked and so regularized. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money and welcome to season three. If you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes and be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your friends whose only bad association with the word colorblind is that one super emo Counting Crows song. Oh, shout out Cool Intentions. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Lindsay Crowdowell and Sam Dingman. We're edited by Verilyn Williams and Chiquita Pascal. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I am so happy to say that I will see you next week. Bad with money.